to Where's My Mind Today. I'm your host, Chloe Astigai, and this is episode 5. This is the final-ish episode in my election-focused series where I've explored both of the presidential candidates in detail, how to vote, and what will be on the ballot in various states on November 3rd, how voting has worked historically in the U.S., and how that might be changing, including an explanation of rank-to-trace voting. I've gone through quite a, quite a few things. Uh, this episode is going to focus on pieces of our democracy that look incredibly fishy to me. I know that this isn't a focus on the current election cycle, but I thought that it was important to include because it essentially tells you the history of elections. So I'm going to kind of go over what I consider historic elections. And by historic elections, I mean elections where the distribution of electoral college votes is super fishy. I'm also going to talk about representatives, the House of Representatives, and how they're distributed by population and how we could potentially fix the Electoral College rather than seek to abolish it. So for those of you who are not quite sure what the Electoral College is, the Electoral College is the manner in which the United States elects our president. Yes, the people vote, but the people vote in order for their electors to then elect the president. So you'll see a lot of things on Election Day. You need to get a certain number of Electoral College votes to in order to win the presidency you need to get the plurality of them so the the majority of the electoral votes have to go to a certain president in order for them to win sometimes a president can win the popular vote but then lose the electoral college this is because certain states have more electoral college votes than others based on their population more electoral college votes per capita um because electoral votes are distributed um, as a, essentially, the, the number of electoral votes each state gets is based on the number of representatives they have in Congress and the number of senators. So every single state has at least three, because every state has two senators and at least one representative. So for that ca- in that case, the Electoral College benefits states that have a lower population and also allows for presidents, presidential candidates to go to specific states to campaign there in the hope that they can switch the state. Because generally speaking, if you're not from Nebraska or from Maine, all of the votes in your state will go toward one candidate. That's traditionally the way that most states do it. So essentially, they count all of the vote, and instead of giving a proportional amount of their electors to one president, presidential candidate, um, instead they will take all of their electoral votes and give it to whoever got the majority in their state. So that's how the Electoral College works. So now I'm going to break down the elections that I think are super, super, super fishy. And then we're going to talk a little bit about the representatives and what exactly the Electoral College entails. So we're going to start with 1824. I forgot this one last time. I did mention Electoral College briefly last last time. Um, But I forgot that 1824 is technically an election in which the person who won the popular vote did not win the election, but they did win the electoral college votes. So there are four elections in U.S. history that the person who won the popular vote lost the electoral vote. There are five in which the person who won the popular vote lost the election, and the fifth one is this one. So 1824, Andrew Jackson versus John Quincy Adams, which this seems super, super long ago, like it doesn't really matter, but I will be explaining every single election and why I'm bringing it up. So essentially, 
and initial results at the end of election day for 1824, Andrew Jackson won 41% of the vote and the majority of the electoral votes with 99. John Quincy Adams, he won 30.92% of the vote and he gets 84 votes. So the only problem there is that in order to win the election, you need a plurality of the electoral votes. You need to get the majority of the electoral votes. And at the time, that was 131. So neither of the two candidates got a majority of the electoral votes, although Andrew Jackson got more than John Quincy Adams and also more of the popular vote. So then, in 1825, they had a contingent election in which, so essentially if the Electoral College does not come with a majority, they bring it to the House of Representatives and there's a contingent vote. And so now the responsibility and a lack of event of, of a plurality is the House of Representatives. And the House of Representatives elects Adams, even though John Quincy Adams got less of the popular vote and less of the electoral vote, the House of Representatives decides to choose Adams as the next president. Jackson was freaking pissed. This kind of thing has happened once before in, in history, um, like the, the same kind of contingent election where the Electoral College didn't find a majority, and then they had to bring it to the House of Representatives. But in that case, the person had won the majority of electoral votes and had won the House of Representatives election. So there wasn't as much of an issue. We cannot blame the Electoral College for this, but I will be coming back to this because the structure of, of the way that our elections work, because it goes from Electoral College to House of Representatives, is incredibly flawed and can be manipulated. And we'll see this later on in history, about 120 years later. So, 1860. Abraham Lincoln versus three candidates, but the most dominant one was Stephen Douglas. Lincoln wins the popular vote and the electoral vote, yes. But what I'm more concerned about is Stephen Douglas. So there are four candidates. There's Lincoln, Breckinridge, Bell, and Douglas. Douglas gets 29.46% of the popular vote, but for some reason he only gets about 4% of the electoral vote. He was essentially in second place, but somehow the third and fourth candidates, Breckinridge and Bell, got more electoral votes than him. In fact, Beck Bell and Breckinridge combined got the same number of votes and the same percentage of the vote as Douglas, but they got 111 combined electoral votes, and Douglas got 12. So what exactly happened here? How does Douglas get more of the popular vote than both of these people combined and get less of the electoral vote? It's because Stephen Douglas's support was widespread geographically. He won nearly 50% of the popular vote in multiple states that Lincoln won, but when a person wins a state, as I said before, they get all of the electors. So Stephen Douglas essentially didn't campaign well enough. Lincoln won the popular vote in the Electoral College, so he does deserve to have won this election. I'm not going to contest that. But this is likely due to strong campaigning in specific states, which is something that we see today. So uh, presidential candidates usually intend to go to swing states. You see, especially in these next two weeks, we're going to see Biden and Trump going to Florida, going to Ohio, going to Pennsylvania, going to places that either swung last time or are traditional swing states. They are concentrating all of their support and places in those places so that they can get more of the electoral votes and they can win. Because it does not matter if you get the popular vote, it matters if you get the majority of the vote in specific states. And that is something that Stephen Douglas failed to do, and that is why 
despite the fact that he got 29.46% of the popular vote, he only got about 4% of the electoral vote. So that's something that we're going to kind of see moving forward. In 1876, this is the first time that someone wins the popular vote, but doesn't win the electoral vote. Um, and also the second time that someone wins the popular vote, but doesn't win the election. Some people will consider this to be the most disputed election in U.S. history. I would say maybe 2000 would be that, but it's Tilden versus Rutherford B. Hayes. It was the highest... This is a little bit contested. So it's the highest voter turnout in U.S. history. 81% of the people who were at voting age voted, although that number might be off. I'm going to explain that in like two seconds. But for reference, in 2016, about 55% of the voting age population voted. So this is a strong number of people going out and voting. However, this high number is... In Florida, Louisiana, and South Carolina, election results were marked by electoral fraud and threats of violence against Republican voters. Also, when I say electoral fraud... Um, a 101% of all eligible voters in South Carolina, which is an impossible number, you can't have 101%, had their votes counted. So how can we trust that 81% of the people at voting age voted when we have somehow a larger number of South Carolinian voters than there are people in South Carolina? So this is a widespread issue in this election that will become contested. Like in 2000, one of the problems was the design of the ballots, but I won't go super far into it because that's not the, the ending conclusion of this. Essentially, there was a system that was meant to help illiterate voters, but it ended up disenfranchising them because they're um, essentially, instead of having names on the ballot, they had stamps on them so that you could tell which party it was, and it ended up confusing some people. In the end, there were a bunch of disputed electors that were eventually awarded to Hayes, he got one more electoral vote than Tilden, but Tilden won the popular vote. Um, essentially, what happened was he had an 889-vote lead in South Carolina, which was the second closest to the election in 2000. However, so yes, Hayes got less of the popular vote and still won, which is ridiculous, but we have to note that there was a strong amount of voter intimidation during this election that made Tilden look more competitive. So if that had not existed, if there had not been so much intimidation against Black Republican voters in the South, um, this it's very possible that Hayes would have also won the popular vote. Because of all of this voter fraud, we will never know for sure, but it seems like, in this case, the Electoral College actually saved the election. It prevented against discriminative tactics and elected an anti-slavery president, which is really, really important at the time. So... At the time, it's controversial, but maybe it's better for the country at this point for Hayes to win over Tilden. This is one of those cases where I can say, you know what, okay, maybe the Electoral College worked the way that it was supposed to. But now I'm going to get to a couple of elections where I'm going to contest that the Electoral College works. So 1888 is the second time in which, in which somebody wins the popular vote and then loses the Electoral College vote. It's Grover Cleveland, who was the incumbent, versus Benjamin Harrison. Um, most of the election was focusing heavily upon very, very specific swing states. At the time, these were New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, and Indiana. None of these states are currently contested in the same way, but regardless. They were all toss-ups, but Harrison seems to have won through fraudulent voting in New York and Indiana. 
Without this, Cleveland claims that he would have won. And by fraudulent voting, um, I don't mean that people came to the to the um, polls and they pretended to be a dead person or came to the polls and voted twice. That's not the kind of fraudulent voting that happened in 1888. Um, at the time, there was not a secret ballot. Right now, if you go to the poll, you nobody's around to see who you vote for. Nobody sees your ballot when you cast it. You have zero pressure to vote for something that somebody else told you to vote for. But at the time, there was no secret ballot, so everybody saw how, your, how you voted and people could bribe you into voting differently. This is partially how the election in 1876 could have been fraudulent. Um, the, this, the fact that Cleveland lost this election despite winning the popular vote is part of the reason why they ended up adopting the secret ballot system, because they knew that there was bribery involved in New York and Indiana. Massachusetts adopted a secret ballot literally three years later, and then the last state to ratify a secret ballot was in 1950. So it's actually been a very, very short history of the U.S. having secret ballots. Cleveland won the popular vote by less than a percentage point, and we can argue that this was aided by disenfranchisement of Black voters at the time. So what's the conclusion of this election? Um, well, first of all, thank God that we started secret ballots because otherwise continued bribery would occur today, and we know that it would. But also, maybe swing states are a little bit problematic. Already, Grover Cleveland and Benjamin Harrison are only focusing on four swing states. So why is it that we're allowing these four swing states to win the election? All of these toss-ups allowed Harrison to win despite not winning the popular vote. So why are we letting this happen? We'll see that how this emerges in the next 150 years. So 1912. This is going to start something that kind of makes me mad. So Woodrow Wilson versus Theodore Roosevelt. Again, this is not an election in which somebody won the popular vote but lost the electoral vote and lost the election. This is something where the person who won the popular vote also won the electoral vote, but we're looking at this for a different reason. Republicans at the time were split between Taft and Roosevelt. Essentially, I'm saying that it's Woodrow Wilson versus Theodore Roosevelt, but William Taft was also there. He was the incumbent president, and essentially his party was split between him and Roosevelt because of specific policy differences and the way that Roosevelt really, really hated Taft. Wilson took advantage of this, and he won a large majority of the electoral vote. He got 41%. But um, it's odd to me, because Wilson gets 435 electoral votes, despite winning 41% of the popular vote. So what happened there? There's Roosevelt gets 88 votes with 27% of the vote, which is only 14% smaller. So how did that happen? Well, I want to, first of all, explain that Wilson, if an electoral vote for Wilson, the 435 electoral votes for Wilson, each vote is represented by for, by 14,500 actual people. So 14,500 actual people contributed to one electoral vote. Each electoral vote for Roosevelt was represented by 47,000 actual votes. So a person who voted for Wilson is two times more represented in the Electoral College than somebody who voted for Roosevelt. I know that this is getting in the weeds here, but you can see that somebody who voted for Roosevelt somehow is at a disadvantage. Also, if you want to look at how unfair this is, somebody who voted for Taft, who got 23% of the vote and only eight electoral votes, 
somebody who voted for Taft, each electoral vote represents 425,780 people. That means that somebody that voted for Wilson has 30 times more representation in the Electoral College than a person who voted for Taft. That's insane. So, this is how we see that splitting the vote becomes incredibly problematic. The fact that Taft and Roosevelt were split down the middle, all of their voters were split down the middle, caused a problem. And we've seen this more recently in the Democratic presidential, presidential primary. Um, so clearly this is something that we have to deal with. The Electoral College doesn't represent the popular vote at all, and this is the first time that we really, really see this, even if the person with the majority of the vote won that election. Um, this is only the beginning, so now I'm going to talk about a series of elections that are essentially events in a snowball effect. They're the beginning of a trend that for the next 10 years gets progressively worse, and we continue to see up until today. So 1928. It's Herbert Hoover versus Al Smith. It's considered a landslide election. Herbert Hoover won 58% of the vote, and Al Smith won 40% of the vote. But that doesn't matter to me. I don't really care that Herbert Hoover won with the popular vote and the electoral vote. That doesn't matter. I'm focused on the Electoral College. Al Smith got 87 electoral votes. Herbert Hoover got 444. There's a great discrepancy there, despite the fact that Hoover won 18 points over Smith. Each electoral vote for Hoover represents 48,259 people, and then each electoral vote for Smith represents 172,591 people. That's about 3.5 times as much for Hoover than it is for Smith, which seems a little odd to me. Um, and you continue to see this in the coming election. So 1932 is Hoover versus FDR, and Hoover loses this time for the same reason. A Roosevelt electoral vote is the equivalent of a representation for 48,350 people who voted for him. Hoover's electoral vote is representing 267,139 people. It's because of a concentration of voters. All of Hoover's support was in New York, New Hampshire, Maine, and Connecticut. Those are the only states that he won, so they're the only places in which he actually got electoral votes. Everybody else who might have voted for him in other states, simply didn't get the representation that they needed in electoral college votes. So when I say that an electoral college vote represents a certain number of people, that means that that represents a certain number of people overall that voted for him, not just the people in New York and Connecticut and Maine. The same can be said in 1928. Al Smith had a very concentrated level of support in the South, so the reason why Herbert Hoover won the first time and the reason that he lost in 1932 is the same reason, because all of their concentrations of votes were in specific locations. So Hoover lost the second time because he did not strategically look for widespread voter turnout for himself. We see this happen again in 1936, but this time it's even worse. Roosevelt wins in a landslide, but somehow Alf Landon only wins two states. He wins New Hampshire and Maine but he got 36% of the vote overall. So in this case, a Roosevelt electoral vote represents 53,000 people, but an Alf Landon electoral vote represents 2 million. So what do we learn from this big series of elections? Concentration of voters in a specific location is detrimental to presidential candidates. They need concentrations of voters in strategic locations rather than just in random states so that they can get a large number of voters 
that that matter essentially we all hear that a vote matters more in florida than it matters in massachusetts or a vote matters more in florida than it does in the middle of the country this is just a thing that we know we know that a large number of voters have almost zero say in their election a republican voter in massachusetts is not going to get any say a democratic voter in texas generally does not get a say so we know that this is a thing this trend continues in today, into today. It happened in 2008. It happened in 2012. We see this in almost every election after 1936. So I'm not going to go super in-depth with these elections, but this is something that we know. So now we're going to get to 1968, and this is going to be a little bit of a reference back to 1824. I mentioned this earlier, but I'm going to bring you back to 1824. So 1824 was the election between Andrew Jackson and John Quincy Adams in which Andrew Jackson wins the Electoral College vote, but loses the contingent election afterward. The House of Representatives instead decides to elect Adams instead of Jackson. While this does not specifically happen in 1968, we see that George Wallace wants to take advantage of this. So in this election, there's Richard Nixon, Hubert Humphrey, and George Wallace of the American Independent Party. George Wallace can't win the whole country. He's an independent but he won five states. He wins Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama, Georgia, and Arkansas, a very, very concentrated area. But he wasn't trying to win. So this doesn't seem like it's a question of the Electoral College, but how do you do it? He was running on a platform of racial segregation. He's an absolutely disgusting man. Nobody likes this man. But he was trying to prevent either candidate from winning a majority in the Electoral College in the hopes that it would go to a contingent election in the House of Representatives like it did in 1824, where he could use his power there to influence the election and select the winner that he wanted. So how do, what do we know from this? Is this just a freak accident? No. George Wallace knew, as a politician, that the Electoral College process is messy, and he was looking to exploit it in order to bring it back to 1824 and cause another contingent election. The contingent elections are very, very clearly rigged in favor of whoever is in power at the time and House of Representatives. So it just does not seem fair to the rest of the population of the United States for the House of Representatives to be able to choose the presidential candidate. So now I'm going to get into the next two elections very, very quickly, the election of 2000 and the election of 2016. These two elections are both elections in which the person who won the popular vote did not win the electoral college vote. So first, 2000, uh, Al Gore versus George Bush. There are literally so many movies about this. I could spend super, super long on this an entire episode, but I'll wrap it into one really, really quick note. The election was decided by Florida, which happens relatively frequently in the U.S., but this time it was by 537 votes, which is 0.009%. The majority of the problem stemmed from ballots. Um, they were focusing on hanging chads, chads, etc., etc., because of um, essentially what's called a butterfly ballot. There was it was hard to discern where you were supposed to stick your vote for Al Gore. A lot of people who intended to vote for Al Gore voted for a third party candidate because they punched the card and didn't realize that Al Gore was the third punch hole on the card instead of the second one. So this is a thing that happened, and then they had to go through hanging chads, which are essentially just like a little perforation of a, of a hole punch that mark an intent of a voter. So this is where we learn that our election process is unstable, that we need to do better at ensuring ballots are accessible and that they're designed properly, that essentially elderly voters are able to use them. 
our election isn't just about voters voting for who they want, it's now to ensure that their intent is secure, because we've been now focusing in 2000 on ensuring that their intent was there. They did not count votes that were toward the third-party candidate, even though those people's intent was to vote for Al Gore. So that's that's an essential issue. Also, by the way, imagine if Al Gore had become president in 2000, how different the world would be now. Anyway, then in 2016, we have the infamous Hillary Clinton versus Donald Trump election. Hillary gets 48% of the vote, but 42% of the Electoral College electors. And Trump gets 46% of the vote, but 57.3% of the Electoral College electors. Um, We know a lot about these candidates because it's such a recent election, so I won't go into their policies or anything, but these are a couple of things that we know are true about the 2016 election. Russian intelligence hacked into the election in favor of Donald Trump through Facebook ads. I talked about this last time. This is just a thing that happened. Two, third-party candidates likely somewhat affected the election by splitting the vote, most notably Jill Stein and Gary Johnson, and very, very key swing states, where Hillary Clinton, if she had won, would have been able to win the Electoral College vote. Battleground states matter, but maybe so do other states that Democrats thought they had a hold of. In this election, Democrats were confident that they were going to get Wisconsin, Michigan, very, very specific states that they did not win, that Donald Trump was somehow able to win because we ignored them because they were not swing states. So in this case, we start to realize that battleground states matter, but so do other states. I know that we know that our elections are flawed. I've, I've given so many examples at this point. I went through literally every election since the beginning of U.S. history. I want to now propose a way to fix it because... Yes, I've explained the problem in depth, but why, how do we fix the Electoral College? So this becomes a story of the House of Representatives, and I'm going to kind of go through this quickly because I know that this episode is way longer than my normal episodes. So I want to briefly talk about the House of Representatives and its impact on the Electoral College. There's a large difference between states and the number of people that they their representative ele- represents and the number of Electoral College votes each state has per capita. So essentially, some representatives represent more people than other representatives. Um, Montana's entire population has one representative, so their representative represents 1,068,000 people. That's the highest number of people that one representative represents. In Rhode Island, they have two representatives, and each representative represents about 530,000 people. That is the lowest number of people per representative. It's really hard to to balance these representatives because we don't want to create thousands and thousands of representatives in order to ensure that each one represents an equivalent number of people. But it is highly problematic that our representatives do not represent an equivalent number of people. So what would our country look like if everyone had an equal number of representatives per capita? Or what if instead of abolishing the Electoral College, we fixed it? Um, For those of you who don't know, the Electoral College votes are determined by the number of representatives plus the number of senators each state has. I think I said this before, but I'm going to say it again. Essentially, every state has at least three. Currently, there's 538 electors and 435 representatives. D.C. has three electors. That's why it has 103 more than the, the representatives. So, electors are entirely dependent upon the number of representatives the state has. So, really, the problem with the Electoral College is the representatives, although there are many, many other problems with the Electoral College that I'll bring up at the end. 
I did so much research on this to try to figure out how we could fix the electoral system and how we could fix the representatives. So here are two options. We keep the number of representatives the same. They stay 435, but we divide them up a little bit more equally based on the estimated population of the United States in 2019, which is about 328 million people. We divide that by 435 state representatives. Each one should represent about 754,000 people. If we adjust the number of representatives for each state, it's a little bit of a problematic situation. California, New York, Pennsylvania, Illinois, Michigan, West Virginia, and Rhode Island would each automatically lose one seat. Texas would gain two, and then Florida, North Carolina, Arizona, Colorado, and Oregon would each gain one seat in the House of Representatives. For those of you who might have been thinking on partisan lines when I said those states, this kind of messes up the Democrats' agenda. Um, more red seats would be created than blue seats, and more seats for the Democrats would be removed. Um, and this would inversely also affect the Electoral College. So in this way, it would really harm Democrats. But I don't really want to think on partisan lines, so I'm going to get into the second way that we could fix this, which is if we change the number of representatives to ensure that they're each representing about an equal number of people, instead of keeping the number the same. I'm going to make it 542 seats, which is an extra 107, which is a lot. But there are countries that have that number of representatives in their parliamentary system. So each representative would represent about 600,000 people, which is what a lot of people think it should be. Every single state, mo mo okay, most states would gain seats in this hypothetical. There are some places that would not gain seats, but they also wouldn't lose any. They would keep the same number of representatives they currently have. These states are New Mexico, Nebraska, West Virginia, Hawaii, New Hampshire, Maine, Rhode Island, South Dakota, North Dakota, Alaska, Vermont, and Wyoming. The problem is I don't think that these states would be on board with creating a system that would systematically enfranchise states that aren't themselves while they just get to stay the same. But I still think that it's a more fair system, so I'm going to go into it a little bit further. Um, the divide of partisan lines would be hard to account for with this because of gerrymandering and the possibility of California having some red seats because they would go to 66 representatives instead of 53. Texas would have 48 representatives instead of 36. Florida would gain nine extra seats. Um, the seats with the largest population have the most to gain from increasing the number of representatives in our House of Representatives. Um, if you're interested in this, because I did a super deep dive on this, I can show you my Excel spreadsheets, I can show you all of the research that I did to go into this, but um, yeah, reach out. Um, so I just threw out a lot of math there, so what does it all mean? Essentially, it seems like the problem with the Electoral College is the way that we've designed it. First of all, the electors are calculated by Senate plus representatives, and that causes problems when it comes to lower population states like Montana, who have three votes in the Electoral College despite only having 500,000 people in their state. This cause causes problems in states like Wyoming, where they have three electoral votes and each electoral vote represents 192,000 people, versus Texas, which each electoral vote represents 760,000. That seems insane to me. There's not a... There, there, that's such a stark difference. Um, I also think that we could fix representatives, and we likely will, but the Electoral College wouldn't be fixed because of the way that we choose the number of electors. 
The Electoral College has caused us problems four times now in 1824, 1876, 1888, 2000, 2016. Four times, five times, whichever one you want to think of. It usually does us right, but it's proven to have flaws. So, yes, there's abolished the Electoral College, but what about amending the Electoral College? We can remove the electors that were added by the number of senators in a state, and we could distribute them proportionally rather than a winner-takes-all mentality, which I didn't really get into, but essentially, instead of allowing a state to take all of the electors and give them to whoever gets the majority, they would elect them out proportionally like Nebraska and Maine do. Um, and that way, the minority in a state still has a say. So in Texas, the 50% of Texas that typically votes Democrat would still be able to swing the vote a little bit. Um, so yeah, that's all I really wanted to say on that. There's so many more things that I couldn't get to, but um, if you want to reach out and learn a little bit more about how I calculated certain things, um, please do. Some of you know my email, but you can also reach out in comments. Um, as always, you can watch episodes on my YouTube channel at Chloe Ostigai, C-H-L-O-E-O-S-T-I-G-U-Y. Um, and you can also reach me from there if you want to see my Excel spreadsheets. Um, and you can also follow me on Instagram at Where's My Mind Today. Uh, next episode will be coming out on Election Day, which is kind of crazy. So I don't have a lot prepared for that. I won't know the results yet. So... Um, I'm going to instead reiterate my first episode and talk about the lies that we hear in politics and from politicians, not just from Donald Trump, but also from the debates that we've been watching. I know that it won't really matter because your vote will have already been cast by the time that the episode comes out, but I kind of wanted to like wrap up the election season a little bit. It's not really an official election season episode, but I thought it would be interesting. So thank you for listening, and I will hopefully see you next week. This show is written, produced, and edited by me, Chloe Ostagai. Artwork is by Caitlin Howard. Music is by Jack Noah. You can find his social media in the description of the show or in the description below every YouTube video. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you next week.